American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Throw it all away. give you a deep dive. I'm going to talk about the murder of Mia Zapata, who was um, a lead singer for the Seattle punk band The Gits. Mia Zapata. Yes. Okay. I'll give you a deep dive. So Mia Zapata was born August 25th, 1965 in Louisville, Kentucky. And from being a child, she was uh, real into music. She could play the guitar and the piano by the time she was nine. Um, she was influenced by punk rock and jazz and blues. Hmm. And um, she had a real, like... Um, amazing voice and then in 1984 she enrolled in Antioch College this in, is a punk singer yeah but, she had a real good voice but huh? she did yeah um, in 1984 she enrolled in Antioch College in Yellow Springs Ohio oh I've never heard of that and I'm liberal from arts student she's from Louisville Kentucky originally yes she was born she went there to college in Ohio that's right in September 1986 <laughs> yeah she and three friends formed a punk rock band the Gits. 1986 was the year that Ron Simmons made his debut in wrestling so that's when the gits were... Per- that was the same time. And in <laughs> 1989, the band relocated to Seattle because that was the big rock scene. Relocated from where? They formed in Ohio? Yes. Yes. Yeah, and they relocated to Seattle in 1989. That's right. And so she got a job at a local bar, and the, they all moved into an abandoned house, and they called it the Rat House. Who else was in the band, to say? Um, th- women? All women? No, it, she's the only woman. Oh, okay. She's the only lady in the band. Yes. She and her bandmates moved to Seattle. She got a job at a Yeah. Gotcha. So um, they released a series of real well-received singles on independent record labels from 1990 to 1991. Um, the Gits? The Gits. Have it, you heard of this, them? Before this? I had not heard, no, I, okay. I, I had not heard of I just want to make this. sure, am I the only idiot? No. But I feel like the well, name they sounds were, familiar. Yeah, I do too. But I don't um, think I can name any songs. I mean, I, li- I listened to it after. You did? Yeah. What do you think? It's good. Really? Yeah. Um, like you would download it right now and pay for it? I think it'd be interesting to see what Audrey would think about it. Oh. You know? Let's see what Audrey thinks about the gits. Audrey Rose? Hello? I just made you watch a couple videos of the gits. What is your initial reaction to the gits? Punk rock, yeah. So you, you know that it was punk rock? Uh, yeah. What, how do you know it was punk rock? Because, like, the beat and, like, the drums is good. And it was real loud? Yeah, it's like... Have you ever heard punk rock before? Yes. When? In this show called Best Friends Whenever. This show called what? Best Friends Whenever. What is that on Netflix? Yes, uh, I already finished the season. Um, it's about these two best friends, and they time travel, and it's really fun because they went back to like the fifties or like the seventies. I don't remember, but like, um, and and they traveled there and like. Like, Sid was a tomboy, and Shelby was, like, the girly girl. So, Sid went with the punk rock people, and Shelby went, to the, went with the disco people. So, then I got to hear the punk rock people. And this was in the 50s? Or, like, 70s. Like, I don't really remember. Okay. So, punk rock. What do the punk rock people look like in this show? Um, 
they had like weird hair. This guy had orange hair, and they had like spikes coming up uh, with his hair like out of everywhere. Okay. And they had like mohawks and like crazy hair. Okay, that's pretty punk rock. So how? What was better, the band in that TV show or the Gits? Band in the TV show. What did you think about the lead singer of the Gits? Did you think she was pretty? I thought it was a boy. No, it was a girl lead singing. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Ah, yeah, she's pretty. Even though you thought it was a boy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, that was Audrey's reaction to. The listening gits. to the gits. Okay, so um, as they were making a name for themselves in the local music scene, they often played shows with their friend's band, which was called Seven Year Bitch. Oh, um, I've heard of that. Seven Year you? Bitch? You've heard of that? I feel like it. This all sounds familiar. So in uh, 92, they released their debut album called Frenching the Bully. Huh. And um, then their Frenching repu- the Bully. Their reputation was uh, increasing when the grunge scene really was starting to hit Seattle. Okay. She came from an affluent family. But but she often lived without material comforts. As her father described it, she, Mia lived in two different worlds. She lived on two different sides of the street. The straight side on one with parochial schools and affluent family and tennis clubs. When parochial. she crossed the streets, material things didn't mean anything to her. Hmm. And her music often led to a rejection of financial comfort. Um, she was... Um, kind of like Vanilla Ice. Stop. What? She... Um, she was this great person. She was really a good friend. Oh, really? She was a little shy, but she um, helped her, you know, she would help people um, kick drugs. Um, she really? did, yeah, she was, and she was a real dynamic performer. Like um, the other band members would like, say that, that they would get off the stage and the people in the audience didn't even know they, were, they had been in the band because they were, that, she was so magnetic. You know, this is going to sound weird, but that's exactly what I feel about Matt Truman. Oh, Matt yeah. Truman ego trip. Like, he, yeah. it's not just, he's got a whole band. Yeah. But he is like a rock star yeah. in a band. Like, he's got feather boas and like white glass. Like, he's like Elton John. Up there. He's like Elton John. He's just like, it's a party fun atmosphere. So I bet she was like that. So she was really well connected to her community. Um, she was the hub of a lot of social circles. Uh, she drew all sorts of people together who otherwise might never have met. Huh. Um, the band, which included guitarist Joe Spleen, drummer Steve Moriarty, and bassist Matt Dresdner, met in Ohio in 1986. Did you say Joe Spleen? Yeah. Spleen. The guy's I, name is Joe think, Spleen? I think that was a stage name. God, that's I a great say that name. Was a stage Joe name. Spleen! Um, I looked that guy up. So, with no time, within no time, the band had developed quite a following amidst the city's underground punk scene. Many would group them together with bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam, but Mia brought a voice of femininity to, grunge, to the grunge scene that had not been seen yet. Although the group was 75% men, the band as a whole, and Mia Zapata in particular, gained quite a following among the feminist community in Seattle at the time. Okay. Like um, feminists. In 1990, so after moving to all. Seattle, they went on to a very successful international tour. Um, I want to say that Beck even opened for them. I think I read that. You want to say it? Yeah, I think I read that back open for them. Um, they, oh, just look it up. So, all and they didn't have a record label, so they were doing all of this without a record label. Throughout the recording of the second album, the band had planned a large U.S. and European tour as well as many local shows. Unknown homeless hippie kid named Beck opened the show. See, I was uh, right. Followed by a mariachi band and a quinceanera. Yep. So they were being courted by various recording labels. Um, But unfortunately, before the group could finish and record their second album, which was called Enter the Conquering Chicken, um, the band was shocked by the murder of their iconic lead singer. Mia Um, Zapata? Yeah. She was murdered? She was murdered. They bring her up and I get all excited. I've never heard of her and now she's dead. 
So here's what here's the deal. God, Joe Spleen did it. Here's the deal. No, you, it's done. Joe Spleen did it. So at around two o'clock a.m. on July seventh, nineteen ninety three. Yeah. Do you want to oh, fill us in July. on what was happening? Well, July it's funny 7th, you should say that because nineteen ninety three. It's funny you should say that because it was two in the morning. Uh, so that was really uh, July sixth, nineteen ninety three. Uh, that evening, it was like late in the evening, it was 2 a.m. So Well, it was earlier, July 7th, but well, it was... That's when this happened, but yeah. earlier in that, that evening before, yeah. before it became the morning, yes. it was July 6th, which was a Tuesday. And uh, just a few days before that, some groundbreaking things happened on, on that 4th of July, and we're only two days after an unbelievable thing in the WWF was uh, they had an event. <laughs> they had a wrestling event on the USS Intrepid. was a big uh, oh aircraft God. carrier. Yes. They did a wrestling event on the aircraft carrier. And the whole event was a, co- a contest to see if anybody could slam Yokozuna. <laughs> Yokozuna was a big, fat uh, sumo wrestler guy. Oh, my God. And nobody could pick him up and slam him. They had all kinds of athletes trying to. They had uh, uh, Lee Rusan, a former New York Giants running back, Bob Backlund, uh, Peter Taglianetti from the Pittsburgh Penguins, a hockey player, Scott Burrell, the Charlotte Hornets, Charlotte, yeah. shout out to Charlotte, Woo! Scott Steiner, Tatanka, Bill Fralick of the Detroit Lions, Crush, and Macho Man Randy so Savage all, those people... all tried to body slam. They, this, this guy, the sumo wrestler, just stood in the ring. And they all just like threw their bodies uh, at him? Now, he was a pro wrestler, but his gimmick was, right, he was, he was, he was a, a sumo wrestler. Japanese guy yeah uh and so he's a sumo guy but they all couldn't lift him they all just couldn't lift him but then but then on this aircraft carrier here comes a helicopter flying in on fourth of july and the helicopter you probably watched this i watched it of course the helicopter came flying in and lex luger who they were trying to make their american hero after hogan yeah they were trying to make him the big hero he gets off this helicopter and he's wearing super tight jeans with no belt and an american flag shirt and uh he rips off the shirt, and of course, he body slams Yokozuma. Did he get oh, flack for ripping the, middle, the American flag shirt? No, he, he didn't rip it. He just took it off. But oh. I think in the middle of all that, Yokozuna took a break while people were trying to slam him, and he ate a bowl of rice. Lex Luger body slammed him. But And then on television that night, uh, before this tragic event happened, before poor Mia Zapata might have been home watching, um, she might have been watching Rescue 911 on CBS. Um, or a, a movie, A Triumph of the Heart, the Ricky Bell story, or if she switched to ABC, she might she might watch re, reruns of Full House, Hanging with Mr. Cooper, Roseanne, Room for Two, and Jack's Place. Do you remember Room for Two? No. A sitcom with Linda Lavin and um, nope. and uh, Marsha Heaton. I do not remember that. Linda Lavin's the greatest thing that's ever happened. Yeah, I know Linda Lavin. Anyway, but... so those were the things on TV. The number one song was Weak. Weak? Do you know who sings Weak? Oh, is it Belinda Carlisle? No. SWV, the greatest. Oh, okay. I get so weak in the knees, okay. I can hardly speak. Oh, okay. I lose all control. Alrighty. And something take over me. Janet Jackson, that's the way love goes. Yes. That's the way. That's the way love goes. Tag team. Whoop, there it is. Oh, yeah. Whoop, there it is. UB40. I can't help falling in love. Oh, right. That's right. With Drew. Uh, H-Town knocking to boots. Jeez. <laughs> Robin S. Show Me Love. <sighs> I can guarantee you Mia Zapata wasn't listening to any of You weren't listening to the popular stuff? Mia Zapata you... wasn't. Oh, Mia Zapata wasn't. I, I was guarantee like, you I, she I'm wasn't. Sure you were at Purple Crackle. Yeah, I was. Dr. Dre, Dre Day. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Dun, All right, dun, move dun. on. Expose, I'll Never Get Over You, Getting Over Me. I'll give you a deep dive. At around 2 o'clock a.m. on July 7th, 1993, she left the Comet Tavern in the Capitol Hill area of Seattle, which was a place she liked to go. Um, and she stayed at a studio space in the basement of an apartment building that lo- was located a block away from there. 
And she stopped and visited a friend who lived on the second floor briefly. Okay. This, and that was the last time she was seen alive. She uh, may have walked a few blocks west or north to a friend's, another friend's apartment or may have decided to take the long walk south to her home. Why does this sound familiar? There was a forensic files about, uh, about this, but we didn't watch it. I think we did. The, a man, at about 3 o'clock a.m., a man about two blocks from the Comet Tavern heard a scream around 3 o'clock a.m., and then a woman discovered her body in the street at around 3.30 a.m., near the intersection of 24th Avenue South and South Washington Street in the Central District. Um, the woman um, ran to the fire department, which was really close by, to report it, and then they come. And this her is at three, by 3 in the morning? Yeah, and her body is still warm. And then the police oh. arrive. They note that her body is laid out. It, her arms are outstretched, and, and her legs are straight down, crossed over each other, kind of like a crucifix position. Huh. Um, She's wearing a hoodie, which was pulled over her face, and then the string, one of the strings um, was, tight, was tied around her neck that, and strangled her. It didn't appear that she was attacked and killed at, at, the, at that scene. There was no blood at the scene or anything. She had no ID on her, so at first they didn't know who she was, but the medical examiner was a fan of the Gits and had been to their concerts, and he you recognized her. think he was like, her. oh my God, this is, my, yeah. this is the best exam shocked. I've ever done. So according to him... Uh, if she had not been strangled, she would have died from the internal injuries suffered from the beating. Oh. Um, according to court documents, an autopsy found evidence of a struggle in which Zapata suffered blunt impact to her abdomen and a lacerated liver. They looked, they looked at her boyfriend, who was, I guess he was kind of a scary guy. Not a lot of people liked him, but uh -huh. he was real super cooperative. He went in whenever they, he did took, took two lie detector tests. He went in. The boyfriends are and, always creepy guys. And uh, he helped the police. He had a really solid alibi. They investigated her friends and family. She was also raped. That was the other part of it. Oh. But um, they. They always are. Yeah. That's why I had to stop watching that show. Every yeah. single woman is raped all the time. But they didn't want to, the police didn't want to release all the information. Uh, they don't, didn't release that she was raped. They, yeah, and they she also had suspects to know that stuff. And then they know they did. Oh, you right, have information. The right. Doesn't know. And also she had bite marks on her chest. And they couldn't do impressions, like, you know how they can do impressions and get dental, yeah. but they couldn't do that. But there was trace amounts of DNA from saliva, yeah. and they were they had the for, enough forethought to collect that, mm -hmm. uh, even though at the time there wasn't any technology. Saliva couldn't it, There be was, but it wasn't um, so good, has it since good enough, because it was, have they, well, just wait. Oh, just gosh, wait. I can't wait. So um, there were scuff marks on her shoes and belt, indicating she may have been dragged. And, you know, that kind of helps to, to figure out how many assailants there were because at first the way she was laid out, it, it makes you think, was there two people, one carrying her arms and one carrying her feet? Right. But the scuff marks would indicate if she's dragged, then it's going to be one person probably. And there's no eyewitnesses, which furthers the theory that the attack didn't happen there because it was, it was not super busy, but it was kind of a busy bar. A area. Well, the area around the bar. Yeah. But it's still 2.30 in the morning, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, God, if she just stayed home and watched Full House. I know. I know. So, she, so there's not, they don't have a lot to go on. They don't, there's no witnesses and there's just a little bit of evidence. The Seattle music community, including Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden. Those are three awesome bands if you haven't yes. heard them. Uh, they, the helped, they helped raise $70,000 really? to hire a private investigator for three years. Back in 93? Yes. They, they did, did benefit that? concerts. They did a benefit concert? Yes. Or they did several? a bunch of them. Yeah. 70 grand? Yes. And, and they, they hired a private investigator for three years. God. Imagine if you could say you were at those concerts. I know. Right? People can. I know. Went to those. But the, um, and now tragic 
basically Chris Cornell's dead and uh, yep. the Nirvana guy's dead. Nirvana guy. Kurt Cobain. Kurt Cobain. Yeah. You know, it's not just me being an idiot. I forget common things. Like the I other know. day I was trying to work on the computer. I forgot what the word control panel was. Yep. Sorry. All anyway. right. So the but then the funds dried up without any major breaks in the case. All that money. Mm-hmm. But the investigator was named Lee Heron, and she continued to investigate on her own time even after that. But then in 1998, after five years of investigation, Seattle police said we're no closer to solving the case than we were right after the murder. Do you think Lee Heron was a big Gets fan? That's why she kept studying it. I don't know. It could be. But then in 2003. They, I like to say ought three. They, they started to, like the, the technology started to improve, and they put the DNA. The, the, one of the other problems with the DNA was there was such a small amount yeah. that in 1993 they knew that if they tried to test it and they goofed it up and made a mistake, it would be gone. Yeah. So they didn't want to risk Let's it, wait until which the was future. a good call. The, that was yeah. a good call by police not to try it. And then, and then they would never know. So they saved it. We'll and, wait to far into the future when the guy's already dead. And then in 2003, they um, they put it through CODIS, which is the CODIS. Uh, yes, that's the database, oh, DNA database oh, of all those creeps. They get all the yes. DNA, and, and they they actually they back. did they put it in 2001, I think it was, but it didn't take. There were no hits. Hot one. But then in 03, there Hot was three. a hit. It was a Florida fisherman named Jesus Mezquia, and he had come from Cuba in 1980. The DNA evidence was used to, to tie him to the murder. A DNA profile was extracted from the saliva found on her body and kept in cold storage, and the technology was called STR technology. Huh. The investigators had to go to Florida, locate this guy, Jesus Mezquia, and, and question him, and they get there, and he's gone. Oh. But his wife... He lived in Florida? Yeah. He was all the way in Florida, like yeah. across the whole country. I mean, this is 2003. Yeah, that's true. All three. But he's... <laughs> but his wife... He gets there, and he's gone, but his wife gives him all the information they need. Like, she's like, oh, you know, because he... Cause she's probably... Because the reason they had his DNA, because he was arrested in Florida for burglary and domestic abuse in 2002. <laughs> so, she, yeah, so she was probably oh, like, yeah, go get him. Get that son of a so, bitch. So... They spot his vehicle a few days later in Miami, and they interview him. Does it say what kind of vehicle? No. But they interview him, and he denies ever being in Seattle at all or murdering anyone. And then they show him a photo lineup of 10 murdered girls, and he says, no, he he doesn't know any of them. He hasn't seen any of them, which is a trap. Right. Because the saliva's on her. So if he would have said he knew her, at least he could have said... Oh, we had a we we got together, or right? We, you know, he could have said, "Oh yeah, we made out." And then right, like, oh, right. Yeah, whatever. But he's but there's but he says, "I don't know her." No, at all. he doesn't know her and all that. He has a history of violence towards women, including domestic abuse, burglary, assault, and battery. All his ex girlfriends and his wife had filed reports against him. All of them. Mm-hmm. There was also a report of indecent exposure on file against him in Seattle. <sighs> Great. People within two see. weeks of Zapata's murder, so he we got to see his balls. Yes, close to and him. it was close by. It was, it was nearby the area she was murdered. Uh, but there was no other prior link between Ms. Kia and Zapata. He, he had lived about three blocks from where she was dumped, though. He lived right by there, and he got his balls out sometimes. Okay. Um, he right? Because he was in decent exposure? Yes, right. Or was he just peeing? I don't know. He, um, so he never testified in his own defense. He still maintains his innocence. Um, the theory that they have is that he saw her leave the bar and he followed her a short distance before he attacked. She had um, she was listening to music and she had headphones uh, on. Walkman. And it covered yeah, and it covered her ears, so she wouldn't have been she would have been unaware of any danger. Yeah, Walkmans were until he thin. grabbed her and dragged her to his car, where he assaulted her in the back seat. He was convicted in 2004, 
and initially sentenced to 37 years, which, for. which he appe- appealed, and yeah. then he was then sentenced to 36 years, yeah. which I don't think is a very long prison term for murder, personally, 36 years. Well, I mean, is it, do you think it, people usually get life for murder, but no, he, he's been in prison since January 2003. Um, Anybody who rapes should get get have their dick cut off. In the aftermath of her murder, friends created a self-defense group called Home Alive, um, which disbanded in 2010, and they organized benefit concerts and released albums with the participation of Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and Heart, presidents of the United States of America, I remember them. A lump. Lump, yep. lump, Joan, she's in And Joan head. Jett also recorded Millions an album. with the pages sh- for free. Sh- Millions That's enough. Pe- Joan Jett also recorded an album with the surviving members of the Gits called Evil Stig, which is Gits Live Backwards. Huh. Joan um, Jett rules. In 2005, there was a documentary, The Gits Movie, which was produced about Mia Zapata's life, the Gits, and the Seattle music scene. Also, Zapata means shoe in Spanish. <laughs> Viva Zapata by punk band Seven Year Bitch was released in June 1994 as a tribute to her. And then some of the songs on that album address the issue of her murder directly. Following her death, Joan Jett and Kathleen Hanna wrote a song called Go Home. Kathleen Hanna is married to Ad Rock of the Beastie Boys. Oh, wow. She's from Bikini Kill. Boom. Good. You didn't know oh, that's that. Good. Boom, dropping knowledge. So, like Galileo um, dropped the orange. Uh, her death caused a sense of defeat and fear within the Seattle community. The Seattle Times marked Zapata's murder as the moment the Seattle scene lost its sense of invincibility. Kristen Storm recalls Zapata's death as a reality check, stating, They were all very tough people, and as a group of women, they're all really strong, outspoken, and hard-hitting, very opinionated women, and that perception of we're not victims at all in any way, and this can't happen to women that aren't victims... And I think Zapata's death shattered that myth for us and showed that it happens to all types of women. Her and her death is cast often as a symbol for feminist activism. But Dresner, the one of her the band one of the bandmates, said that she was it was like she was sainted and that was very peculiar. She became this icon that had very little to do with her actual life. What did Joe Spleen have to say about it? Oh, his his real name is Andrew Kessler. The Joe, Joe Spleen? Spleen. Yes. His name isn't even Joe? No, it's Andrew Kessler. Screw Andrew Kessler. You can't just use the name Joe Spleen all willy-nilly. He said, Mia had no social or political agenda and no real interest in that stuff. Yeah. Also, after her death, she quickly acquired a symbolic status as a feminist icon, martyr, and poster child for rape and violence toward women, which had nothing to do with who she was as an actual person. And sometimes that's the way it happens, but people need an icon, you know. Uh, yes. That is the story of the murder good. of Mia Zapata. Yeah, um, that's good. That's it's crazy how that happens. Some something tragic like that happens. Well, and it's or somebody, and then they turn it because into, also because stranger attacks are actually kind of rare. Yeah, it's usually, usually somebody, somebody know, you yeah. know. So and, and just in general, it just it just reiterates the point of especially back then you you just couldn't be a woman and go anywhere by yourself at night, especially that late. At well, night. if I can remember all the times that I walked alone home from a bar, I mean that's so scary. You're so lucky. I know. I know. Yeah. I mean, and she was a tough cookie, so. I just remember being in college and girls wanting to go home by themselves and like you cannot, yeah, because there's a million people just waiting to rape everyone outside. Yeah, it just, is. I mean, what kind of world we live in? I know it is. It's sad. That's a great way to end uh, this podcast. We'll all just be sad until and cry the next episode. and everything. But the next episode is '94 when I graduate high school, so I'm getting a little bit older. So you're going to be getting some trim. I'll be getting trim and trim more trim. I got plenty right. trim in the '90s, baby. Yeah, I know. All uh, right. Um, anyway, I like you. That was a good story. That was good. Is that, that all right? Exciting. Yeah. I didn't put anything about a rock star. It's kind of cool. Well, maybe we can play some of her music or something. Yeah, during well, the I don't think we can. Oh, we can't. Like copyrights. copyrights. Maybe I'll do some karaoke versions, yeah. which is probably not okay either. I don't know. Anyway, is there anything else we forgot about 93? I think that is it.
it. Stupid. I think it's time to get uh, out of here, Chuck get Berry. Get out of here, Chuck Berry. Uh, stupid Jeff Barton graduated in 93, and he's got a skinny head. Actually, the class of 93 of my high school. They all had skinny heads. No, a lot of those people are dead. That's um, what we should talk about. Well, we don't need to talk like about more it. More than normal. Anyway, this has been American Timelines, episode yep. four, 4, 1993. Get the fuck out of here, Chuck Berry. Get out of here, Chuck Berry. Peace. Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time by their music.